Thank you. Um, and thank you very, very much, Audrey, for the kind uh, invitation and uh, offer to participate in this forum uh, in Torch. Uh, in general, uh, I won't provide much of an introduction to this talk. I think it's somewhat, um, if not self-explanatory, I think uh, very few discussions that involve uh, a figure like Ludwig Klages, uh, not exactly a household name uh, in the West, and only I think I think only one of his books has been translated into English. It might be an anthology, but but recently uh, there there have been a few books in English that have appeared on his work since he's a very important figure in uh, German history of ideas. Um, but the, the backstory on this uh, paper is that at one point I uh, thought about writing a book on, on uh, Benjamin's relationship to Klages and the cosmic circle more generally, meaning the Stefan Georga circle. And uh, <laughs> this is a bit of an exaggeration, but uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the three volumes of uh, Clogus, uh, the spirit as uh, the intellect as the antagonist of the soul, published from uh, 1931 to 1933. Uh, it's about 1,200 pages, and it's it's you know someone would have made it up if it hadn't existed because it's the incarnation of a unreadable tome. In this case, three tones tomes by a German autodidact. Um, so I, I like collapsed about halfway through at some point, and uh, you know, maybe one day I'll get back to it. But um, so this is kind of the outline of the project, the uh, um, kind of exoteric version, since esotericism is uh, you know, a, a leitmotif and the theme with the, the Stefan Georga circle. So without further ado, uh, I'll begin. The standard account of Walter Benjamin's intellectual itinerary identifies him as uh, an homme de gauche, a man of the left. Such an interpretation was especially well suited to the first wave of uh, Benjamin reception at the hands of the German New Left during the 1960s. The left-wing interpretation canonized Benjamin as the, the strat a strategist in the literary struggle, the champion of Soviet cinema and proletarian authorship, the ideological ally of Brecht, and the author of uh, his best-known essay, perhaps, The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction. Biographically speaking, Benjamin's left turn, as it were, began in 1923, the year of the catastrophic German inflation when his family lost uh, its fortune. It was then that Benjamin joined the ranks of Weimar's swelling army of proletarianized intellectuals the same year he read uh, uh, Lukács' uh, History and Class Consciousness and openly avowed his interest in what he called radical communism. Uh, the next year, he uh, spent a, a time on the Isle of, uh, Italian island of Capri with Ernst Bloch, and uh, his, his transformation uh, or kind of reincarnation uh, had begun. The foregoing account, while correct in its details, is somewhat misleading 
For the left-wing optic on Benjamin misconstrues other theoretical influences that are in truth, uh, in my view, more fundamental. Influences that are indispensable for understanding the often rarefied approach to the practice of criticism, philosophy, and historical study characteristic of his work. So the, the question I begin with uh, this afternoon is, what if brushing the conventional wisdom against the grain, the key to understanding Benjamin's development, lies not with his ties to the left, but the political right? What if instead the defining moment of his intellectual trajectory were a dangerous encounter? It's a word from Junger. Um, gefährliche Entgegnung, something like that, from the year 1922, a Berlin meeting with Stefan Georga, associate and former leading light of the Munich-based cosmic circle, Ludwig Klages. Initial support for this view is provided by Gershom Scholem's observation that, and I quote, Benjamin was able to perceive the subterranean rumbling of revolution even in the case of authors whose worldview bore markedly reactionary traits. Generally, he was keenly aware of what he called the strange interplay between reactionary theory and revolutionary practice." End of quote from Scholem. And in his seminal essay, Consciousness Raising or Redemptive Critique, The Actuality of Walter Benjamin, Jürgen Habermas hazards a remarkably similar insight. And I also quote, Benjamin, who uncovered the world of prehistory by way of Bachofen, knew Alfred Schuller, appreciated or venerated Ludwig Klages, and corresponded with Karl Schmidt. This Benjamin, as a Jewish intellectual in 1920s Berlin, could still not ignore where his and our enemies stood. But the latter, I agree with the first part of that claim. I don't agree with the second part. I'm not sure he did, did know, and that's not a, a moral judgment. It, it's, and, I, and, I, and you'll see why I'm saying that. Contra Habermas, I would suggest that the question of whether Benjamin viewed the stalwarts of Weimar Germany's conservative revolutionary worldview as enemies or instead as fraternal spirits is open to interpretation. Be that as it may, Habermas's remarks felicitous, felicitously characterize Benjamin's conservative revolutionary hermeneutic. And by that, I mean he was more interested in the idea of redeeming lost and endangered semantic potentials and traces than he was in the orthodox Marxist conception of chronicling, chronicling capitalism's demise or unmasking false consciousness. In sum, Habermas's and Scholem's remarks suggest that Benjamin's ties to conservative revolutionary thinkers far from constituting a temporary infatuation or an alliance of convenience, constitute uh, central and enduring matters of substance. The cosmics, and you know, in German it's kosmische Rund, um, <laughs> were a fin de siècle literary cenacle that inhabited Munich's storied bohemian district, Schwabing. Their members included Klages, Stefan Georga, the talented poets Ludwig Derleit and Karl Wolfskell, and lastly, Alfred Schuller, an autodidact and amateur scholar who introduced the group to the exotic pansexual theories of the all but forgotten Basel scholar Johann Jakob Bachofen. They referred to themselves as the, the Kosmiker, the Cosmics, 
uh, as well as the enormous. I'm not sure how to translate that. I have the colossals here, but you know, you fill in the blank. Their fanciful speculations sought to overcome the anthropocentrism of the modern West and reestablish contact with the mys mysterious, telluric, primeval forces that predated even human life. Their solution to the problem of alienation, the forlornness and isolation of modern men and women, was to extinguish human individuation, submerging it in the cosmic vastness. And they had a term for this called the Weltall. Like the, like the Stefan Georga Kreis later, the cosmics were a Männerbund, almost like us, a homoerotic society of men. The co I mean, that's, that's important. Uh, the cosmics were Zivilizationskritiker, critics of civilization. They employed a proto-Spenglerian idiom, in part adopted from Nietzsche, to demonstrate that the West was in a state of irremediable and permanent decline. They agreed with Nietzsche that the French Revolution had ushered in an age of equality cum mediocrity, hence the most sublime cultural values could flourish only on the margins. The cosmics scorned the bourgeois institution of literature as prosaic, a form of expression that had made its peace with the pedestrian values of the middle class, respectable society. They viewed the novel as symptomatic of what they called in German the Literaturbetrieb, or literary business. Conversely, French symbolism, the poésie pure of Marame, Verlaine, and others, was the cosmic's most important literary influence. In the eyes of Georga, or the Georga Christ, only poetry, in German, Dichtung, embodied certain fragile and rare Neoplatonic virtues. Only poetry harbored the capacity to channel and purvey immaterial and timeless truths about the nature of eros, beauty, and the realities of an eternal being. During the 1890s, the cosmic's main literary outlet was uh, Stefan Georges, uh, it's called Blätter für die Kunst, and it had a swastika on the cover, if you've ever seen it. That was Schuller's discovery, and there, there's speculation. Um, I won't go into the details, but it, it was through, through Schuller or a, a mutual publisher that Hitler actually uh, found, found out about the swastika. Of course, this was an era of Ariosoph, uh, Ariosophy, uh, and Spiritism, which is kind of in the background here. Okay. Uh, the cosmic sought to combine the virtues of manliness or vir virility with the aforementioned symbolist aesthetic proclivities. Unlike the symbolist, the cosmic's attribution of a salvific mission to poetry contained a marked ideological dimension for it simultaneously functioned as a polemical indictment of 19th century scientism and the enlightenment cult of reason. Um, yeah, yeah. Of course, since the romantic era Vernunftkritik, uh, or critique of reason, uh, had been a staple of German uh, Geistesgeschichte, intellectual history. Like the romantics, Schopenhauer and Nietzsche, the cosmics viewed the understanding, uh, Kant's understanding, der Verstand, as an impoverished spiritual idiom, suitable perhaps for the imperious goals of world mastery, but incapable of fathoming the deeper mysteries of being. The cosmic's anti-intellectual disposition would receive consummate expression in Klages' obscurantist uh, chef d'oeuvre, which I've already mentioned, 
uh, Intellect as Antagonist of the Soul, three volumes. As the title suggests, in the spirit of Lebensphilosophie or vitalism, the cosmics dogmatically stake their claim against the intellect on behalf of the soul or life. Uh, among the cosmics, perhaps the least known figure was the unclassifiable neurasthenic Alfred Schuller. Well, I guess I just classified him as neurasthenic. It was he was. It was Schuller who rediscovered the work of the nearly forgotten, I mentioned this before, 19th century scholar Bachoffen. Bachoffen's most influential work was undoubtedly uh, Mutterrecht, Matriarchy. You can translate it different ways. The Right of the Mothers, in which he claimed to have discovered evidence of a primordial matriarchal society that was subsequently vanquished by a more advanced patriarchal civilization. In Bachoffen's view, the entire history of civilization could be explained by the antagonism between feminine and masculine principles. Bachoffen held that myths and symbols of the ancient world possessed a cognitive superiority vis-a-vis -vis modern, formalized approaches to knowledge. Ancient myths convey traces of a lost primordial unity, a world in which the nexus between knower and known had not been uh, unjustly sundered. As Bachoffen remarks, there are two roads to knowledge, the longer, slower, more arduous road of rational combination and the shorter path of the imagination. Aroused by direct contact with the ancient remains or ruins, the imagination grasps the truth at one stroke. The knowledge acquired in the second way is infinitely more alive and colorful than the products of the understanding, the intellect, or he uses the, the word I mentioned before, um, verstand, the verstand. And I think this flash of illumination was very powerful for Benjamin. Uh, his notion of profane illumination uh, is definitely influenced by this uh, alternative conception of cognition. Of course, it's you know also derives from Platonic uh, nous. Uh, like any avant-garde cultural grouping, the cosmics experienced their share of tensions and crises. One occurred in 1903 when uh, Stefan Georga happened upon a prepossessing 14-year-old lad from a well-to-do Munich family, Maximilian Kronberger. For the cosmics, his nickname was Maximin. Maximin was beauty incarnate, the living embodiment of Platonic Eros. As a Mennerbund, the cosmics viewed homoerotic love as a higher ideal than love of the opposite sex. Georga was hope hopelessly smitten and began following the unsuspecting 14-year-old around the back alleys and boulevards of Munich for days. As one specialist on the Georga Prize uh, described uh, the circle's stalking techniques, and I quote, whenever Georga spied someone he found attractive, he dispatched some of his minions, and, you know, it was of course very hierarchical, they referred to Georga as Der Meister, not even by name. Um, uh, he, dis he dispatched some of his minions to gather information about him. They followed the unsuspecting lad around for weeks, sometimes for hours at a time, thereby surreptitiously discovering his name, where he lived, who his friends were, how he behaved, and so on. Georga often accompanied them on these reconnaissance missions, and together they watched the boy from afar. It turned out that the precocious Maximin secretly wrote poetry. On one occasion, he handed Georga a collection of his verse, commenting in his diary, a new life has now begun. 
Maximin soon became a regular presence at cosmic gatherings and seances. In February 1903, the group held a raucous uh, Fasching celebration in Wolf Wolfkehr's uh, spacious, spacious Schwaben apartment. Since the Cosmics were fond of reenacting the rituals and cult practices of classical antiquity in order to get closer to the, this pri uh, primordial unity, um, they seized on Fasching as the pretext to stage elaborate costume balls that were totems, dead serious. Each member of the Cenacle adopted a different persona from classical antiquity. Georga was out outfitted appropriately as, as Caesar. Wolfscale as Dionysus. Others attended in the guise of various gods and goddesses. Perhaps the most striking appearance was Shula, attired in a long dark robe and wearing a black wig, beret, and heavily made up face, he impersonated the Magna Mata, the great earth mother who during the second and third centuries uh, AD enjoyed cult status in ancient Rome. Her worship included acts of sacrifice, castration, as well as orgiasticism. A remarkable and rather ludicrous, I don't have it with me regrettably, group photo of one cosmic soiree has survived. Maximin is bedecked as a Roman page, Yoga as Dante, uh, and has his arm gently draped around the boy's shoulder. Uh, mea culpa, I didn't bring this slide with me. It's, it's priceless. Schuller was, deadly serious about, Schuller was deadly serious about these rituals and cult practices. He believed that by engaging in them, one could reestablish direct contact with the life of Roman antiquity. During the 1890s, he conceived, I'm not making this up. During the 1890s, he conceived a half-baked scheme to cure the ailing Nietzsche. Nietzsche didn't die until 1900. Cure the ailing Nietzsche by performing a sequence of erotic ritual dances in his presence. In 1904, the Cosmic's maximum infatuation came to a tragic end when the youth contracted meningitis while traveling and then died a few days later in his parents' home in Munich. Georga was inconsolable. He mourned the boy's death for a solid year, dedicating himself to producing a, a, a volume of memorial poetry, uh, a basically a literary apotheosis that treated Maximin's life as the second coming, or a profane version thereof. But the episode that provoked an irreparable breach among the cosmics was spurred by Schuller's growing infatuation with Indo-European mythology and related anti-Semitism. Karl Wolfskale, also known as the Jewish cosmic, had become increasingly interested in Zionism. In Schuller's eyes, this was insupportable. It confirmed his fears that a Jewish world conspiracy was germinating in the cosmics very midst. Both Schuller and Klages disparaged Jews in their writings as Molochites. They held that the Jewish spirit, its intellectualism, commercialism, cosmopolitanism, and metropolitanism, was responsible for the West's pre precipitous decline, the manifold failings of, as the Germans say, civilization, <clears throat> which is a term of derision. At one point, the clinically paranoid Schuller insinuated that Klages himself was a Jew. <laughs> I'll read this. Klages hailed from the northern city, here's the reasoning. Klages hailed from the northern city of Hanover. Hanover had once been settled by Phoenicians, which I doubt is the case, among whom Jews also resided. Hence, Klages himself might be descended from Jews. Hence, Klages is a Jew. Sounds like Trump. Matters came to a head in 1904 as both Schuller and Klages 
brought pressure to bear on Georga to break with Wolfsgab. When the Meister demurred, Schuler took matters into his own hands. He sent a soldier, I think dressed in Ro ancient Roman garb, to Wolfskale's apartment bearing a black sealed envelope containing a formal declaration of war. Thereafter, Wolfskale never left his home without carrying a loaded pistol. The upshot of the confrontation was that the Cosmics unraveled as a group. Now to Benjamin. In 1914, in his capacity, so he's 22 years old, in his capacity as president of the Berlin-based Jugendbewegung uh, group, the Free Student Association, Benjamin had invited Klages to speak. Given Klages' distinctive brand of primordial vitalism, his relation to the Jugendbewegung uh, was, was quite uh, significant and intense. In 19, for example, in 1913, the youth movement, German youth movement, celebrated its centenary. In October, a fabled gathering of various youth movement organizations and currents took place at this sacred site of Hohe Meissner, near Kassel. Benjamin attended, along with several friends. In a volume commemorating the Hohe Meissner summit, Klages con contributed a very important essay called Mensch und Erde, Man and Earth, which in retrospect stands as the germ of this unreadable masterwork I refer to Spirit as Antagonist of the Soul. With all its bombast and exaggeration, Klages' proto-Spenglerian address represents an uncanny portent of the post-World War II deep ecology movement, and I have a quote from it. You'll see why. From Klages. An incomparable orgy of devastation has seized hold of humanity. This is before World War I, too. Civilization exhibits the traits of a limitless bloodthirstiness. The Earth's fullness withers from civilization's poisonous spread. Progress, in quotes, the carrier of an empty will to power, I'm sorry, prop, yeah, is the carrier of an empty will to power from Nietzsche. Its methods betray the insanity of sheer destruction. Under the pretext of utility, economic development, and culture, progress enacts the annihilation of life. It levels forests, eradicates animal species, and eliminates primitive peoples. Under the cover of industriousness, it unmakes landscapes and reduces everything that remains to a mere commodity, livestock destined for slaughter. The Frankfurt School also read Flaugus. He's footnoted in Dialectic of Enlightenment. Technology and modern science stand in its service. Um, end of quote. During the 1920s, Benjamin's spiritual affinities with conservative revolutionary uh, thought were significantly greater than, were, than they were with the major figures on the political left. Whereas the left, following Marx and the Enlightenment, placed its trust in progress, in a counter-enlightened spirit, Benjamin equated progress with catastrophe. This is the famous image from uh, the Thesis on the Philosophy of History, uh, uh, Angelus Novus, right? Thesis 11. His dual focus on the concept of experience, in German Erfahrung, and on what he liked to call anthropological nihilism, uh, kind of a, an acceptable form of anti-humanism, was derived almost exclusively from sources on the ideological and political right. In his view, the Lebensphilosophen, the philosophers of life, had done a consummate job of unmasking the epistemological, cultural, and political deficiencies of the modern bourgeois worldview. 
in contrast to the mainstream left, which with its legalism, economism, and parliamentarism, had to all intents and purposes become a mainstay and pillar of the cultural and political mainstream. But the question remains, could the doctrines of Klage, Schule, uh, Karl Gustav Jung, Karl Schmidt, and Nietzsche be genuinely, to use a Brechtian term, refunctioned, as Benjamin hoped, in order to serve as theoretical leverage for uh, the, a European left that had lost its uh, compass. In 1922, Benjamin again wrote to the former cosmic colossus, Ludwig Klages, to express his admiration for a recently published article called Vom Traumbewusstsein, of dream consciousness. This will be important. An essay that Benjamin praised emphatically in the letter, the letter as having opened up extraordinary long yearned for perspectives. Two years later, Klages published a major speculative work um, of cosmogonic eros that also left a deep impression on, on him. Benjamin seized the occasion to write Klages a fulsome missive, stating, and I quote, allow me to express to you by virtue of these lines, what a joy and what a confirmation of a common ideational course I have come away with upon reading uh, on cosmogonic eros. A year later, he wrote to Scholem, proclaiming that a confrontation with Bachoffen and Klages is unavoidable. Following Bachoffen uh, and Hesiod, uh, cosmogonic eros posits an original condition of chaos that is followed by the birth of the universe, or as Klages described it, the uh, world all. The cosmic energy that is released in this process gave rise to a store of sacral primordial images. Bilde is the word in German, a very important word for Benjamin. Modern humanity, however, to its detriment, subsists at a fateful remove from this substantive and rich prehistoric image store. The more intellectualized and sophisticated civilization becomes, the more it loses touch with this original condition of primordial cosmological plentitude. Romantic love, that is love among discrete anonymic modern individuals, is a pallid offshoot of the vast store of erotic energy that pulsated throughout the cosmos at this dawn. For Clogus, this eros bears the seeds of a, a, a hallowed and originary oneness. Clogus Lebensphilosophie might thus be described as a cosmogonic vitalism. Its point of departure was not merely human life, but the totality of primordial being. Following Bachoffen's lead for Klages to recapture lost time uh, meant to approximate, as nearly as possible, this antediluvian condition of pristine oneness in which individuality and subjectivity are orgiastically extinguished in an undivided stream of primeval erotic energy flows. As Klages explains, uh, eros is elemental or cosmic insofar as the individual being in its grasp experiences itself as pulsated or convulsed by an electric current analogous to a vast primitive consciousness uh, through which it receives image traces. End of quote. The virtue of Klages work is that it emphatically rejects what Walter Benjamin called the contemporary technical and mechanized state of the world. 
One indication of how central Bachoff and, and Klages approach remained for Benjamin is that he returned to their theories with some urgency during the 1930s. At this juncture, however, the reception context of their ideas had become extremely fraught. One could no longer plausibly deny that the link between the reactionary and irrationalist proclivities of their thought uh, and the current political situation, that is, the rise of fascism. For example, in his, just one example, in his Naples speech, just prior to the 1922 March on Rome, Mussolini, describing fascism's mass appeal, declared, we have created a myth. This myth is a belief, a noble enthusiasm. It does not need to be reality. It is a striving and a hope, belief and courage. Mussolini contraposed fascist myth to the degraded and inferior worldview of 19th century rationalism. That's a leitmotif throughout his work. Probably, you know, he was an autodidact too, originally a socialist, of course, um, but very much uh, inherited from Nietzsche and, and also uh, Georg Sorel. Uh, he was against 19th century rationalism, which, with, which withheld from the masses that which they craved above all an integral belief system, an irrefutable worldview, a functional equivalent for Christianity's demise as, to quote Weber, Max Weber, an Erlösungsreligion, a religion of salvation. Back to Benjamin. Thus, in his 1935 Bachoffen essay, Benjamin so soberly noted the use to which Bachoffen's work had been put by the, the um, well-known Nazi philosopher uh, and not a hack, in this case, Alfred Boimle, who had recently published a book on Bachoffen called um, The Myth of the Orient and the Occident. Klages had recently published also the, the unwieldy uh, three-volume study, The Intellect as the Antagonist of the Soul, whose anti-Semitic resonances, the rise of intellect was clearly associated with the rise of monotheism and ultimately the predominance of world Jewry. Um, so these were unambiguous, unambiguous resonances of the book. Klages' ceaseless denunciations of the nefarious influences of Yuda left little to the imagination. In his texts, there could be no doubt that the wasteland of contemporary civilization was largely attributable to Jewish influences. It is little consolation to note that Klages held uh, Christianity, which following Nietzsche he viewed as infected by the Jewish uh, slave morality in scarcely higher esteem. Nevertheless, Benjamin felt it was his duty to recover the other Bachoffen, the, the one who could be made serviceable for the ends of the political left. But did such a Bachoffen really exist? Benjamin saw support for these efforts in various asides in the extended Marxist corpus. For example, Marx's son-in-law, uh, Paul Lefargue had written an essay on matriarchy that seemed to arrive at conclusions remarkably similar to Bachoffen's. He also invoked Engels, uh, Friedrich Engels' early work, The Origins of the Family and Private Property, where Engels discusses um, Bachoffen, um, but um, it's not uh, unilaterally positive by any means. At this point, it's worth inquiring about the dimension of Bachoffen's oeuvre that Benjamin wished to revivify. Specifically, it pertained to Bachoffen's depiction of the interrelationship between matriarchy, mutterrecht, prehistory, and classless society. And this is actually what I, I think that Benjamin uh, 
you know, learned and, and uh, internalized uh, and felt so important about uh, Bakoff and, and tried to refunction uh, for the ends of the left. In Benjamin's view, Bakoffen's path-breaking discovery, and Bakoffen was a charlatan. I mean, his works were uh, <laughs> refuted at the time by scholars. He was a privatbiller at the University of Basel, and he had to resign his position. It had to do with his um, path-breaking work on ancient Roman uh, tombstone imagery, uh, uh, that, and, and from which he drew these conclusions about uh, matriarchy and, and uh, you know, they're, they're fanciful. In Benjamin's view, Bakoffen's path-breaking, yeah, between prehistory and communism, Bakoffen's great breakthrough was to have identified the integral relationship between communism and Mutterrecht. Bakoffen held, or at least Benjamin so interpreted him, interpreted him, that what Marx called primitive communism was a product of matriarchy. Thus, gynocracy and communism went hand in hand. And of course, gynocracy has come back in the last several decades. It's an interesting affiliation. As Benjamin phrases it, Bach often had unearthed, when I quote, the undisputed fact that some matriarchal communities developed a democratic order and ideas of civic equality to a very high degree. In the same essay, Benjamin praises Klage's philosophy for the subtlety of its analyses, the depth of its insights, and the level of its discourse. Benjamin's surprisingly upbeat appraisal of Bakoffen and Klages takes us to the heart of his mature philosophy of history, or his later philosophy of history. Like Bakoffen and Klages, he believed that humanity's path to perfection was necessarily an eschatological affair for which cosmological considerations were absolutely central. This is part of the reaction against 19th century doctrines of progress. On these grounds, he viewed Bakoffen's speculations concerning matriarchy's structural egalitarianism as infinitely valuable, as an antidote and remedy for the injustices of modern class society. The challenge, however, would be to discover how one could actualize these potentials amid the desolate landscape of modern technological civilization, which existed at an unbridgeable temporal and spatial remove from Bakoffen's conjectural matriarchal Eden. It is at this point that Klage's doctrine of archaic images, or Urbilder, became urgently relevant. For if it could be demonstrated that traces of these images, or Urbilder, archaic images, remained preserved in the historical present, then the prehistoric utopia would be ours for the taking. And I think this goes to the heart of Benjamin's Arcades Project, and I'll try to explain that. It was in the Arcades Project, the unfinished masterpiece on which he labored desultorily during the last 13 years of his life, that Benjamin sought to resolve the Bakoffian Klagian problem of how to actualize the semantic remnants of this archaic classless society in the historical present. Here one might note, well, I'll get to this later. He developed these ideas with regard to he developed his ideas with regard to this theme in the so-called Arcades Exposé, also titled Paris Capital of the 19th Century, from 19, I'm sorry, yeah, 1935. Benjamin begins by citing a maxim. These I've, I've selected out uh, a couple of, of sentences. I think they uh, are really important. It's just a few, so 
Um, hold these in your collective unconscious or conscious, whatever. Okay. Benjamin begins by citing a maxim from the 19th century French historian, Jules Michelet, chaque époque rêve la suivante. Each epic dreams the one that follows, thereby implying that the past can serve as a dreamlike, phantasmagorical anticipation of the future. Invoking both the Surrealists and Freud, Benjamin implies that dreams tell us more about reality, and especially about the future, than reality itself. He also alludes to his friend Ernst Bloch's notion of dreaming toward the future, Zukunftsträume. Uh, like the Surrealists, for Benjamin, dreams possessed a distinctly higher cognitive value than traditional epistemology from Descartes to Kant. I'm sorry, from Kant. Yeah, from Descartes to Kant. They explode the reign of the Freudian reality principle, thereby providing intimations of utopia that are tactfully concealed within the historical present. For, for precisely these reasons, in the Arcades Exposé, Benjamin also cites Marx's famous remark from a youthful letter to his young Hegelian colleague, Arnold Ruge, that, and I quote, the world has long been dreaming of something that it can, it can possess in reality only if it becomes conscious of it. And that's why this early text, this text from 1922 by Klages on dream consciousness is so important, but I'll, I'll mention that in a minute. Consequently, in the opening paragraph of the Arcades Exposé, Benjamin sought to fuse the concepts of wish image, dream, wunschbild, uh, wunschbild, wunsch it's plural, dream, collective unconscious, that comes from Jung, and classless society. And I, since this uh, citation uh, I consider to be uh, significant, that's the one I wanted to put up since it's otherwise, you know, kind of... Uh, okay. Let's see. What do we do here? Okay. Okay. So this is, I think, where all this comes together. Uh, in in his, this is like the the. He's trying to present presents the Arcades Exposé to uh, Horkheimer in New York uh, as, well, for other purposes as well. He's trying to get funding. He's penniless uh, in, in Paris as an uh, uh, emigre you know, without, without citizenship. Um, so this is, he's trying to attract funding with this Arcades Exposé proposal. And this is the beginning. Corresponding to the form of the new means of production are images in the collective consciousness in which the new is permeated with the old. These images are wish images. In them, the collective seeks both to overcome and to transfigure the immaturity of the social product and the inadequacies of the social organization of production. This is a kind of a euphemism for Marx's specification of the relationship between forces and relations of production and the way the relations of production retard the forces of production. So that's the, the uh, you know, perverse dialectic that dominates capitalism. These, tendency deflect, these tendencies deflect the image fantasy 
which is given impetus by the new, back upon the archaic past. In the dream in which each epic entertains images of its successor, the latter appears wedded to elements of prehistory, archaic history, Urgeschichte, that is, to elements of a classless society. And the experiences of such a society, as stored in the collective unconscious, engender, through interpenetration with what is new, the utopia that has left its trace in a thousand configurations of life, from enduring edifices or buildings to passing fashions, la mode. The key to the arcades project, now it's back to my, my narrative, the key to the arcades project hinges on the theory of images or builder that derives from Klage's notion of archaic images. The wished images of utopia or of classless society have been deposited in humanity's collective unconscious. Such images derive from the archaic past or prehistory, an allusion to the mythical era of matriarchal egalitarianism celebrated by Bachofen and Klages. Under conditions of late capitalism, the old and the new commingle, and the archaic images from prehistory press to the fore in an attempt to surmount the deficiencies of industrial capitalism. According to Benjamin, these Klagian wish images are irrepressible. Emanating from the collective unconscious, they leave their traces in what he says, as I quoted, a thousand configurations of life. And I'll name some of them. Not, not a thousand, but some of the ones that he names. The iron constructions, daguerreotypes, bourgeois interiors, Grand Boulevard, and barricades. Of course, these are the central thematic rubrics of the Arcades Project. They are the focus of Benjamin's unorthodox Marxist redemptive hermeneutics. Suffice it to say that in Benjamin's eyes, Charles Fourier, who speculated that, under socialism, rivers and lakes would pulsate with lemonade, public fountains would overflow with salmon, wells would yield champagne rather than groundwater, men and women would learn to fly, be a lot cheaper. And wild beasts would do our hunting for us was a better socialist than Marx, that is, Fourier was. For Benjamin, like Fourier, communism was not primarily a question of greater economic rationality, but mandated the total utopian transfiguration of humankind. For such tax tasks, Klage's ideas and doctrines were vastly more serviceable than those of, say, the later Engels. I'm nearing my conclusion. In Cosmogonic Eros and this other work on dream consciousness, Klages contended that archaic images and dream life represent uh, structurally parallel phenomena. The emphasis on archaic images and dreams gave Benjamin free reign to speculate about a utopian resolution of humanity's future, that the sober and constricting epistemological parameters of orthodox Marxism had consistently tabooed. In Benjamin's eyes, the arcades and the related manifestations were humanity's attempt to rid itself of the injustices of class society by dreaming toward the future. If the wish, if the wish images of 19th century life represented a type of collective dream, as Benjamin frequently claimed, then his arcades project was a type of monumental historico-philosophical Traumdeutung, which of course is the German title of Freud's 
1900 work, Interpretation of Dreams. In the Arcades Project, uh, in, in one of the sections, Convolute K, which is entitled Dream City, Dream House, and Dreams of the Future, Benjamin seeks to illustrate the relationship between archaic images, dream consciousness, and the advent of a classless society. He suggests that just as a sleeper's physical sensations and bodily dispositions, he, he, I quote him, he says, blood pressure, intestinal churn, heartbeat, and muscle sensation. Just as these physical sensations affect her dream imagery, the same is true for, and I quote, the, the dreaming collective, which through the arcades communes with its own insides. We must, he continues, expound the 19th century in fashion, in advertising, in buildings, and politics as the outcome of its dream visions. In Benjamin's view, the monumental confrontation between nature and technology that took place during the 19th and 20th centuries produced a new configuration of nature, that's a quote, and unleashed, that unleashed archaic images, Urbilder, in provocative new ways. Benjamin also quotes in the same uh, section of the Arcades Project, uh, Carl Gustav Jung's claim that the collective unconscious is a deposit of world processes embedded in the structure of the brain and the sympathetic nervous system. It constitutes a sort of timeless and eternal world image which counterbalances our conscious momentary picture of the world." End of quote. In his view, in Benjamin's view, Jung's account of the relationship between prehistory and human physiology complemented Klage's theory of the reality of images. That's a figure from Klage's. Die Wirklichkeit der Bilder, the reality of images, actuality of images. Both approaches, Jung's and Klage's, sought to explain the relationship between collective and individual elements, as well as the psychological process via which images are transmitted to later generations, which is, I think, why he was so interested in their theories. Okay, and this is my last page. Benjamin's Frankfurt School colleagues remained extremely skeptical about the methodological centrality of Klages and Jung for the Arcades Project. In 1934, as Benjamin labored on his Bachofen essay, Adorno expressed his reservations concerning his friend's uncritical reliance on Klages. He contrasted Klages' antiquarian, or anachronistic, conception of archaic images to the more historically sound and less purely psychological notion of dialectical images, a figure or term that Benjamin himself had successfully employed in his book, One Way Street, from uh, 1928. In an August 1935 letter analyzing the Arcades Exposé, it's a kind of a famous letter, it's been reprinted in English, Adorno reiterated these criticisms. By following Klage's static, undialectical theory of archaic images, Benjamin, according to Adorno, naively treated prehistory, Urgeschichte, as a golden age. In Adorno's view, prehistory, instead of providing material suitable for emulation, was living hell. There, life was preponderantly Hobbesian, impoverished, brutal, uncultured. Hence, the return of archaic elements in the 19th century, for example, the reign of commodity fetishism, quay modern myths, signified the advent 
of an ending catastrophe rather than utopia. By the same token, if you read the, the letters in which Benjamin and Adorno talk about Klages, Adorno is also very enthusiastic and definitely influenced his critique of uh, epistemology or, or modern theory of knowledge, um, something that he wrestled with too, Adorno. Nevertheless, Benjamin remained convinced that a methodological confrontation with Klages doctrines was essential for the success of the Arcades project. Matters came to a head in 1937, once it became clear that the Institute for Social Research was uninterested in an independent essay on Jung and Klages that Benjamin had proposed. Instead, at Horkheimer's urging, Benjamin turned his attention to a quote-unquote materialist study of Baudelaire that became Paris of the Second Empire in the work of Baudelaire, uh, which Adorno also criticized. By the late 1930s, Jung, from his perch in Switzerland, had already revealed his pro-Nazi sympathies. And for anyone who could de decode the zeitgeist, the proto-fascistic nature of Klages' antithesis between intellect and soul was not hard to discern. In 1940, Klages would publish an anthology of his own early literary fragments called Rhythms and uh, Runes, but not Ruins, Runes, like Stonehenge, which was brimming with crude and distasteful anti-Semitic pronouncements, trying to, trying to prove his uh, pro-Nazi and anti-Semitic bona fides. It was clear that, as the drumbeat of impending war echoed, the solidly, it's also the year in which Benjamin died, impending war echoed, the solidly anti-fascist Institute for Social Research felt it could not take a gamble on Benjamin's politically ambiguous fascination with leading intellectuals on the German right whose unsavory political allegiances at this point had become an open secret. Thank you. <laughs>